VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and in the studio this week, I'm joined by Rory K. Smith, Tony Cascarino, and from his lovely gaff in Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. Uh, coming up, we'll be talking Newcastle, Southampton, previewing Liverpool and Chelsea in the League Cup, and we'll also have the much-beloved Quick Hits. But first, we're heading to the Etihad. Some rare respite for Arsenal in the second half. As Cathola swings it in. Oh, Giroud scored! Against the run of play, the Gunners double their lead. Ollie, I'm going to let you start on this. A very different Arsenal showed up than the one most people expected. Uh, yeah, but it, I mean, a lot of people have concentrated on the formation and, and things that they did differently. I mean, we, we've seen Arsenal line up in, in that way, in that shape before in big games. I think the difference was one of attitude, really. I think they... they after an you know, uncomfortable first couple of minutes where they weren't getting the ball much, I, I thought they looked like they, um, they'd shrugged off the inferiority complex of recent seasons, by which I don't mean the last one or two. I mean the last four, five, six seasons in terms of a lot of these bigger games. And um, they had a, a way to make sure that they suppressed City when City were in possession, they Silva when he had the ball. And they were also very, very intelligent, and that's what I would use, intelligent, in, in the way they used the ball themselves. They didn't, didn't try to dominate possession. Cass, Ollie talks about them being more efficient and this change in, in attitude. Mm. I think to, to a layperson, it looked like they said, well, why don't we defend in numbers and hit them in the break and have, you know, and have a lot of edge and intensity about us and so on. Mm. Viewed from the outside, the reaction might be, why don't they do this more often in terms of like, you know, Sanchez and Casorna, like the wide spaces and everything. Mm. Is it that hard for a football club to go and and change your attitude or well, for a team it's it's been that hard for Arsene Wenger and his Arsenal because it was very different and I think it took us all by surprise because we didn't expect them their fullbacks to be quite rigid uh, conservative didn't venture too far forward you know we had guys like Ollie said working their socks off you know Cozzolo I've never seen tackle so much you know it was just a team ethic that we don't associate with Arsenal I always feel that Arsenal are going to make a mistake, an individual one. I think last year's game, the opening goal was a set piece. It was typical that Di Macias wins a header, then Aguero gets on the on the end of it. But they just denied space to City. And not doing a job on David Silva, but making sure that his options were very limited when he got the ball, having bodies around him. And it made it... Look, he's fantastic in tight areas. He can find a pass. But I think as a team... 
Um, it was something that we haven't seen from Arsenal. And yes, they should do it more often. Well, sorry, uh, you've been there though. I mean, I'm assuming Wenger doesn't go and tell, because in, in different ga- in other games, I'm assuming he doesn't go and tell Casorla, you know, be less intense in the tackle mm. and, and and whatever else, work less hard. He may have told his fullbacks to be more conservative in this game. But again, why doesn't this happen more often? Is it is this a, fun, a shift in Wenger? Or, oh. or is it actually difficult when you train to play a certain way and then in a game you have to change it all up again? Well, I, th- I think he must have taken something on board from last year. They were hammered away from home by the teams. Now, you can enter a game and go into a game against City and think, we'll take them on and we'll, we'll try and play our way and everybody plays in an adventurous style that you can get bodies into areas that cause City problems. No one doubts Arsenal's ability to score goals. We all know that whether it's Giroud, Sanchez, Kozolan, Ramsey, there's numbers of goals in there. So even if you're defending against a team that are very good and very gifted, you always are a threat. But they've gifted so many goals. It's not they've been beaten 1-0 in these games. They were beaten fives and sixes. I thought, has Wenger really learned? Because it's been a long time coming, but it felt like something very... If it wasn't Arsenal shirts, it wouldn't have been an Arsenal team. You wouldn't have... You know, if you'd have looked at the, the game and not realised it was the Arsenal shirt, you'd have gone, that wasn't an Arsenal performance. Against Chelsea earlier this season, did they try and do something? Were they a bit tighter? I mean, they, they lost 2-0. Um, and I suspect you know, from from memory an early goal trying to change it, but was it was that a, a, a signpost? And the same at Anfield, obviously you're playing a much worse Liverpool team. Was that a signpost that the vendor was becoming a bit more pragmatic away from home? And it just took it was. I think the other thing you've got to factor in is how bad City were. City kind of played into Arsenal's hands because they played with no tempo at all for the first half. They were, as Ollie says in his excellent match report today, they were okay for 15 minutes after the break, but they weren't. They didn't really test Arsenal at any point. That, that has to be a factor. Arsenal played well, but City played badly, and those two things aren't unrelated, and they are reciprocal. Ollie, why did City play badly? Highlighted the fact that um, Yaya Torre was, was missing, and, and you know, that is an issue. I mean, if, if you go back to... Um, I'm trying to think, did, did Company play in, um, in Rome? I don't think he did, did he? I, I mean, all, all of those players were on the night that they produced their best performance of the season. City are capable of playing without those players, and... and Fernando and Fernandinho are capable well as a as a central midfield partnership, as they showed in Rome. But I, I thought it was I thought it was incredibly subdued mm. from about the the third minute onwards. You sort of feel the intensity go from from them. And I, I wonder if when you're playing against Arsenal, scoring early as as a lot of the bigger teams have tended to do against them, particularly in home matches against Arsenal, I wonder if that. Can, can build up confidence and, and maybe failing to get that early goal against Arsenal. Maybe that just gives Arsenal a bit more confidence to start playing their way. And, and we saw Arsenal eventually start to play the game on their own terms. And I mean, it's, it's hard to explain City beyond City's performance beyond the you know the, the three players I mentioned: Torre, Absent, and um, Aguero, and company. Evidently not at full fitness. But I mean, you could say the same of Arsenal. R- Ramsey was just back after. Um, after injury, and you know he did a great job. Casorla, I think most would have as the man of the match, but the, the I guess part of the, the guy who kind of embodied this change was uh, was Francis Cockland coming in, um, sitting in front of the back four. He's one of those guys who's, who's been at the club a while, but you know gets sent out on loan, comes back, and you never quite know what to make of him. Is he that impressive, Rory? Is he, or did he just? Was it the right man, right place, right time, and we need to kind of withhold judgment until we see more yeah. of him? He's clearly not a bad player. 
obviously that it would be ridiculous to say he's a bad player. I suspect it's more that he has played well because he shows how important it is that Arsenal have someone playing that role rather than he is kind of this world-class player who Arsenal have just kind of forgotten about for the last four years. He's been uh, been out on loan a couple of times, I think. That he's one of those that you, you look at it and you wonder whether Arsenal have really believed that he was going to come through. They seemed to have lost faith with him. Um, you can tell from his squad number... Th- 34 that's not a, that's not that's not the shirt you give to someone you think he's going to be a major player for you but he he's I've seen him a couple of times now uh, despite not being at the, uh, the Etihad yesterday um he's a good footballer and he does that job really well and that is an important job it's what Arsenal have been crying out for it's what Arteta doesn't really do when he when he, when he's fit for all Arteta's benefits he can't cover the ground he doesn't close down spaces he doesn't do all that sort of dirty stuff that Trotland seems happy to do so yes he's done really well whether they do even better with a better player than Tottenham playing that role, I don't know. He's basically behind Arteta and Flamini in, in the pecking order, right? Uh, he was, certainly was about three weeks ago. I don't know if he is now. Same with the goalkeeper. You look at the performances and Wenger, ultimately, we, we can sort of say, oh, you've got to bring your, your big names back and blah, 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 and they did it with Chesney. Cotland's well, played well. I don't, I don't see any reason to drop sort, him. It sort of typified his bench, didn't it? If you looked at his substitutes bench, you look at people like Gibbs who would be guaranteed to walk back into the team. Didn't happen. You know, you looked at Ozil, you're sort of thinking, you've paid a lot of money for him, and he's, yeah, he's been out injured, but he didn't come back in. So Wenger went for a much more, what he felt was reliable players that would do a job on the day, mm. which was quite surprising, because normally Wenger does love to put his players back in, uh, which so it, it took me uh, a bit by surprise. Would I be allowed to say something about City? <laughs> they are capable of that. They are capable. I'm, every time I've seen City this season, you invariably get about four, half an hour, 45 minutes, where they kind of do nothing and then they kind of turn it on when they have to and it's normally enough to get them a win. They have this side to them that is very kind of listless and lacklustre. And it, I know they've done 14 unbeaten before before yesterday, but that side to them is, is there and it is always there and it's never far from the surface. That They are capable of turning in a, a kind of slapdash performance. And I think the reason that so many people, even when they closed the gap to Chelsea, the reason that so many people said Chelsea are still going to win the title not necessarily that comfortably, but moderately comfortably, is because City always look like dropping points. And an awful lot of the time, they're, they're bailed out by individuals and by, you know, whether it's Torre stepping up a gear or Silva or Aguero producing some magic. I mean, it, I, they, they've won the league twice, but they, they, they've scraped the league but on the occasions they've won it. There's no real intense, intensity about them a lot of the time. And that's where I would worry about City. There's a real bothered attitude. It feels from the manager to the team... I mean, it's so obvious that Aguero wasn't fit. You know, and we know Vincent Company hadn't played for a number of weeks, and you could tell that he was a bit flat-footed at times. Aguero looked so unfit to me. I'm looking and thinking, there was an incident late in the second half. He, he got caught out, and he tried to chase back to defend as a centre-forward, and he was going backwards. And we know how quick Aguero could be. You know, what happens in the Champions League and the, the outcome of the league and how City perform in the next, what, three or four months, it's going to decide Pellegrini. It's, you know, at the moment, I look at City, even when they've won titles, I felt, do you know what, they should have won them at Kanto. They've got such a, a superior squad. I thought last year was typical, and the year they won when Aguero scored in the last second of the game against United. Yeah, City was so much better than everybody else. Sorry, but you touched on a point. that You said they were so much better than everybody else. Yeah. Are you talking about what, performances? Or are you saying... Players like and performances. No, when they... Because well, that, that, that's kind of the crux of the issue, right? Because... When you say they were better, if, if we're talking they were better in terms of performances and yet they only won with that last second goal, then you could say that 
they were actually a bit unlucky. If they were so much better because they had a, so, uh, a much better squad, but they weren't actually playing to the level of that squad, then that's a different issue. And, that, and that's a knock on, yeah. on, on I the would, manager. I would go that they the level of their squad, uh, they should have won a lot more and got a lot more points. Gab, there's some games you just knew that City would just turn the heat down and just not perform. Right. I want to ask you about the um, about the penalty, the way company defended on Nacho Monreal and, and, and Monreal going down. Was this clear cut to you? I think company gets himself in an awkward position, which is a bit flat-footed. But I also think that Monreal was absolutely knowing where he wants to go over and what part of the body he can use from company to go over. And it was just an outstuck leg slightly. There's no intention of a foul. He doesn't look to try and look for, does he, Monreal. It's more Monreal looks for him, but he gets caught knowing. But it's a penalty I, no, because the, the defender I, isn't... Is in a position Did, where he's allowing the, the, the attacker to win the penalty. Allow Oli a say, but I, I'm surprised there's so much debate about it. It was a penalty. It was obviously a penalty. Company steps across him. It's, a penalty. it's funny because uh, um, that's exactly what Paolo Di Canio said on Italian television. Whereas Robbie Savage said the opposite, as I recall last night. Oli, where do you stand? I thought it was uh, one of those uh, growing number of things that you could call both uh, a foul and a dive. I, I think it's, it's perfectly possible for, the, for there to be both. Company stepped across him. I think in in order to block him and and was blocking him, but Monreal absolutely made sure that there was contact by throwing himself into the challenge. I, I, I thought I thought it was it was a penalty, and whether you can book somebody for diving when it's a when a foul's given, I don't know. But it's it, I, I thought a penalty and a dive. Ollie, uh, at some point when uh, Ivory Coast are are finished with uh, the Cup of Nations, Wilfred Boney will come back. What do you think happens? Does he go straight in? Can he go? Can he revitalize them? Does it mean less minutes for for Jacko? Well, I think it, I think it probably means less minutes when or Aguero because it means he he can actually be rested to an extent. He doesn't need to play twice a week, which they would hope to be doing by that stage of the season. If, if, if indeed they get past Barcelona, Pedrinho was asked about it last night, and he said, "Well, it, it, it's not a case of adding a striker; it's a case of replacing Negredo, who who they sold, and obviously they've." They've gone one up this season, but Boney is seen as somebody who can play up there on his own, who can play with Aguero, with Dzeko, with Jovetic, and, and be more of a, a spearhead when um, Aguero is missing. Cass, I want to give you the final word on this because uh, you were, well, certainly you were more of a Boney Dzeko type than you were an Aguero type. Can two big men... And Cass looks a bit disappointed at that. <laughs> can, and can, can, can two big men, and I know obviously Boney is perhaps more dynamic than Dzeko, and Dzeko's maybe more technical, but... Can you can you play with two strikers like that, Boney and Jekko together? Is that a rational partnership given the way City play behind them? Um, I've always felt that good players can play together, whether they're big, small, or whatever. And of course, if they can't do certain things, if you have two centre forwards who can't head a ball, then you've got a problem. If you've got wingers who are going to cross them, so I, I've seen Boney score goals with his head. You know, I've seen. Aguero get goals with his head so even when crosses come in could they play together why not I'd be pretty shocked that they would fail that miserably well, I've I, always I, been very wary of saying that's only one road of success is to have big man small man I've seen two big man play together I've seen two smaller lads play, and cause massive okay, problems can you, yeah, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm a genuine question I'll throw this out to everybody can, uh, can somebody suggest uh, a, a club or, or a team in recent years that has had two guys that size and with those characteristics playing together up front and you can't mention PSG because obviously mm. Cavani starts from a wide area I uh, can't really think off the top of my head but then 
I hadn't seen a team play with no centre forward. When Chris Sutton and Alan Shearer. There you go. Oh, yeah. oh, what big? Oh, yeah. are you going for big? Yeah, I've seen. Of course, I've seen big partnerships. Okay. Me and Sheringham. Yeah. I would argue neither Boney nor Jekko is really a Sheringham type, but yeah. Oh well, okay. I'd argue well, that Ferdinand Castorino is not really a Boney or a Jekko. Ferdinand? Stop it. Sheeran Ferdinand. Would you yeah, but uh, perhaps yeah. perhaps that's but, it. Perhaps that's but, it. But Boney's. I mean, he's he's what six foot, but he's not he's not characterised as a as a big man. I mean, in terms of, the, I mean, he, he's a quick, strong striker rather than a uh, rather than somebody who particularly uses his height. I know he's good in the air, but he's not. I don't think he would force City to play in a different way. I don't like City at all when they play with two strikers. Even when one of them is Aguero? Even when one of them is Aguero, I think it slows them up too much. So your verdict would be kind of thumbs down. I think Aguero is, is a brilliant footballer, but I think he does give them a little bit of a problem in the way that brilliant footballers often do in that... I don't understand why Pellegrini wants a more physical presence next to him, because I'm not sure he has the physicality to lead a line in the Premier League, despite his extraordinary ability. But I just think with two strikers up there, then the two, then sort of Nasri and Silva tucked in behind, they get too narrow and the, the play becomes very stodgy and very kind of treatly. And it's been a very cagey start to the second half. Reed, long with a touch. And here is Elliot again! And he's scored again! Speaking of Treacley, let's move over to uh, the Northeast, uh, where Newcastle hosted Southampton and lost. Obviously, it's been a theme all season long. We're waiting for Southampton to drop off. They never do. Ollie, I was particularly surprised because they don't have Schneiderlin, they don't have Wanyama, and they go and, and they take all three points. And obviously, they don't have Saido Mane and Jay Rodriguez. Was this a bit of a smash and grab, as uh, maybe Rory's mate John Carver suggested? It wasn't the most fluent performance. It was. It wasn't as convincing a performance as um, the performance at Old Trafford a week earlier, when, according to Louis van Gaal, they were dominated by Manchester United. But um, no, I mean, you, you just talk about no Wanyama, no Schneiderlin. But I mean, they, they put Harrison Reed in. Harrison Reed is what is he? Nineteen. Another product of their academy, and, and he did a, a very decent job in front of the back four. And Ward Prowse uh, involved in the pressing game further forward and. I thought, I thought, without looking anywhere near their best, they again look like a proper team who know how they're going to play. And I think that makes an awful lot of difference. There are a lot of teams um, in that top half at the moment, bigger teams, Liverpool, Manchester United, you know, who look uncertain about the way they're meant to be playing at times. Southampton, I, I think they, they look like a team. They look like they know what they're doing. They look like they believe in what they're doing. And I think that that is an encouraging sign. You know, one of the narratives is like, oh, they learned all this under Pochettino. But... They have a lot of new guys who weren't there last year. Mm. Uh, you know, just Gardos, Pele, Tadic, and, and, and so on, Bertrand. How, how difficult is it to explain to players to do, I mean, it's a very stupid question here, but you know, explain to players how you want them to play, especially when it is somewhat sophisticated, uh, the, the, the way Southampton play? And why um, can't other teams do it? Well, I think if you simplify it for players, tell them the don'ts and have what you don't want to do, and... If you make extreme measures, if they do the opposite to what you tell them, the penny will drop really quickly. Um, what do you mean by extreme measures? Like well, making you run the stadium? I've known steps? managers that are, it's told players before games in dressing room say, if you do that, I'm pulling you off. And, and that's in the negative sense. You mean metaphorically? The, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'll take you out of the game. And a player was, I remember John Sheridan. I remember John Sheridan saying to me, saying, Big Jack's just told me if I play a one two off the centre forward, he's going to pull me off. Before the game, I said, "Well, don't play one-two then, John." So he didn't, because Jack wanted him to play in a certain style. Now that's extreme, but I do know that if you set a team up 
And Southampton's clearly their record tells you, their goals against stats tells you that they are well drilled in what they're doing. Players know the positioning they're in. And far too many managers don't know how to set up, and I've had this conversation with Rory, set up a team to not concede goals, where Brendan Rodgers has said it's quite easy. It's not easy. As a team, it's very difficult to defend as a unit, where everyone will do a role in the side that will complement their partner. If it's the left side of the pitch, the two left players know what to do. If it's the right side, what two centre-halves? Where, you know, watching KU and John Terry is quite simple. You know, they both... I mean, Saturday they played the game. They could have played if they were 90 together. It was so easy for them in front. But they still know their jobs. And that's, I think, the basis of Southampton is that you've got good players doing simple things very well. It's not that complicated to stay in positions that are asked. You know, Arsenal was a bit different, as we talked about earlier, because... They haven't done that type of performance. That was a very unlike Arsenal, what we've seen. But Southampton have been that nearly every game. Yeah, they've lost a few along the way, but they've won a lot. Carver, and the reason I keep bringing up Carver and Rory together is because Rory made a funny in the game today. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. About, uh, about John Carver, something along the lines of... Uh, John, explain it? John Carver said that he was surprised Jermaine Defoe had left Toronto that it was a real party city. And I am baffled by who in Toronto would invite John Carver to a party. And I'm also baffled as to if that's your standard for, for party city. I mean... I would have thought Newcastle might be more of a party Newcastle city. Newcastle is a party city, yeah, that's true. Than Toronto. Although it's also a city of, with, with a tremendous amount of culture and real heart. I think we should point that out. Am I, am I, why would John Carver say that anyway? Well, he worked in Toronto, didn't he? No, but why? He partied in Toronto. He partied he was a, really hard in He was Toronto. a club promoter in Toronto in the Asset House years. <laughs> but is he associating Jermaine Defoe with a party animal all the time? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's a good point. Yeah, that's you a good know. point. I just thought it was a really strange thing to say. Which, given that Jermaine Defoe couldn't settle in Toronto because he missed his mum, is is perhaps (laughs) missing the point entirely. On a serious note, Carver very unhappy that no penalty was awarded for uh, Jose Font's handball. Yeah, well, yeah. Kind of has a point, yeah. It was a handball, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was. But we've got look. We've got this is a bigger subject. But we've got into we've got into a ridiculous situation with the referees now. Whether you can see it every every weekend, the referees are terrified of making decisions, and it's our fault. It's all of our faults. The, the media, the managers, the players, the fans. It's everyone's fault. We, we only have ourselves to blame. Well, uh, we'll be getting more on that uh, in the quick hits when I bring up Mr. Martinez and, and what he's done. But Ali, I want to get your take on this. And I've read George Culkin uh, like everybody should. I, I don't remember seeing a guy in an interim position like Carver is, who's lobbying so hard and so openly and so honestly, there's almost a a whiff of desperation about it. It also seems obvious to me that if you're actually don't like to spend money, then maybe what you do is you're not going to get relegated. Just give the job to Carver till the end of the season and then figure things out in, in, in the interim. What's the problem here? What's your take? 
that, that they might well go down that, that road that you talk about, just let it drift to the end of the season and whether John Carver's any good or not um, as a manager, unless unless they get to the point they did, um, what was it now, six, year, six seasons ago? I think, knowing what I do about Ashley, I, I think that would be his preference to, to, to let things drift, to not have to pay a compensation for somebody to get them and maybe to get somebody... Um, cheap um, at the end of the season rather than get somebody cheap now. But so why not I, appoint Carver now? I mean, well, why not just say, Carver, the job is yours through the end of the season, and then we'll see. Well, why, you, why make this well, guy go I, beg I, for a job after well, every game? They might well do that, you know, as, as a sort of to the end of the season type job, but I mean, I, I think it would be very much a sort of interim appointment. Do you have to pay him more if you make him an official interim? Well, you pay him whatever you like, right? Do, do you? I mean, uh, yeah. you, you should. You certainly should. But uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine. Um, I can't imagine that Pardew was exactly one of the. Well, he wasn't one of the highest paid no. um, Premier League managers when he was at Newcastle. He's actually getting more um, more money at Crystal Palace. So the the, the budget that that Mike Ashley on a, on a Newcastle manager is not going to be big enough to um, to get uh, the, the sort of high caliber candidate that Newcastle fans are. That's a concern. They mentioned on on match of the day. There was a thing in it when they lost to Chelsea. I can't remember who was commentating. I don't, you shouldn't criticise commentators, so they are very good. But someone said, oh, you know, if they keep on playing like this, the, the, the job will be John Carver's. And you sort of thought, well, they have just lost. It doesn't matter how they've played. They've, they've now lost like two games in a row. But there was someone on, on, on Match of the Day on, on Saturday, they talked about the potential candidates. And obviously Remy Gard's been linked. And they listed Frank de Boer and somebody else who was quite high profile. Frank de Boer is not going to go to Newcastle. Jurgen Klopp is not going to go to Newcastle because Newcastle is, wrongly, but it is, a club completely devoid of ambition. It is a graveyard mm. for, an, for an ambitious manager. The idea that Ashley could even tempt someone like Frank de Boer, who at some point is going to manage Barcelona, is ridiculous. You seem so sure about what Frank de Boer's future is going to be. Can, can I just ask, well, is he, has, he been, has he impressed you so much? No, 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 it's just that he's a former Barcelona player. He's Dutch. He's going to manage Barcelona. It's that simple. Same as Truman. He will Same get as Bouderwein's end in Winston Bogart. They will all get Michael Reitziger. They're they all going to go. They will all get their chance. Yes, Patrick Clivert. Okay, got it. It's a club with no identity, and the fans feel that. So and you, if you did you, did you say a club with no identity, as in where they're heading, and I don't feel it's a club of identity on the football field, Gab, from the fans' as a perspective. I don't feel that from that football club. There's no heart in Newcastle at the moment. And if you accept mediocrity, and if that's what Carver's going to give them to the end of the season, a guy that clearly has been an assistant, you know, the fans are just going to feel, what is happening here? And they've been thinking that for years. Gab, if you used to write mediocre columns, but you don't, Thank but you. if you did, people wouldn't read them. And in a minute, Newcastle fans are going to turn their back. Because if they go into next year, they need something up there. It's always been a club that thrives on excitement. And like a lot of football clubs do. But I think Newcastle is even more than most. They love the, the excitement of the town. Now, I know they can't do a Kevin Keegan again, what they did. But I'll tell you what, I think Mike actually seriously has to think about giving something back to the, the fans that will bring something exciting to that football club again. They do have exciting players. They, they, they've got some young players who are, who are now in, in the team. I mean, Dummett's, I think, has done a, uh, a good job this year. I, I just think they have, above all, a communications problem. And I wonder if maybe you had somebody who spoke in a very straight way to the fans and say, look, realistically, because of geography, because of history, because I'm not Mansoor or Abramovich, we are not going to be competing for the Premier League title. No, but, but what it can give you is... Homegrown youngsters, exciting football, B 
be with us. We're special, blah, blah, blah. I'm wondering if a message like that would resonate with the fans more than what you've been getting. I don't think... That, I think there's a massive misconception of Newcastle fans that, that they're demanding. I think there are no less demanding fans in Britain than Newcastle fans. As you say, they want decent football, decent team, and they want a team to, a, a team to have a go, as George Tolkien has written in his brilliant piece in the game today, cross-promotion. There, there's ways and means of finishing 10th in the Premier League. You can finish 10th in the Premier League just by sort of thinking, right, we'll get there eventually, it doesn't really matter how, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of the Cups, we don't care about them. Or you can say, right, we are going to have young players, we're going to have a, a smattering of local talent or up-and-coming players who we will then sell on. We will try and play in an exciting way. Newcastle don't need to be stagnant to finish 10th. They can be exciting and but, still but, finish But you 10th. still need to communicate that. Yeah, you're right. You, you, you you're need right. to be cleared with the fans and stuff. This and is what we're doing. That's what. No, no, but we don't own Newcastle, not yet, anyway. But is it not your, was it your idea or is it someone else's idea that, that, that Newcastle are the perfect candidates to be the British Bilbao? Was that your idea? No, it was. You know whose idea that was? Go wasn't on. that um, way, way back when, before you were born? Wasn't that the, the John Hall and Freddie Shepard and those guys? Was, was that not their before idea? I was born. No, I don't think that was their about. idea. Their idea was vanity signings and Alan Shearer. Newcastle, they've missed that boat for you know to be City or Chelsea. They've missed that billionaire boat, probably a yacht. In fairness, they have to find another way to have a to carve a place and niche in the Premier League. Ooh. And th- it's not a bad idea to say. Look, we are going to try and do this locally. That meets Mike Ashley's I want to be cheap requirement, but it would also get the fans on board. League Cup Tuesday coming up, Liverpool and Chelsea. Liverpool, maybe a bit of a bounce. Chelsea devastating at the weekend. Cass, on paper, this game is more important for Liverpool than it is for Chelsea, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think they've... Um, because they've turned, turned a corner and sort of... Rogers has gone back with a formation where he's gone back to the you know the pace up front and getting Barini in there and you know using the the Lanas, Coutinho's, the Sterlings to be influential in the outcome of a game, and they've been quite a tighter team. Unfortunately, going back to my you know what I felt at the weekend, the way Swansea play, I think it fits Chelsea. I just think Chelsea love teams who want to play in certain areas where they can rub the ball off them a bit like they did last year in the two 0 game Anfield. I think that's the big test for Liverpool. Can they not get caught by Chelsea waiting like vultures to get the ball off them? Roy, Brendan rested some key players like Mario Balotelli. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he, uh, he rested Steven Gerrard ahead of this game. Is, 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 is the matchup, I mean, if he does go three at the back, bearing in mind that you know maybe his three at the back has slightly more ball-playing elements to it than, uh, uh, than, for example, United's, is it really playing into Chelsea's hands that much? No, no not necessarily. I think the three at the back is actually... Yeah, I think it's, it's broadly worked for Liverpool, that system. I think their defence, since they lost 3-0 at United, which was when they first started playing it, I think they might have the best defence in the league since that game. Uh-huh. Which suggests that something is going right. The one thing I would say is that with Liverpool, it does look more like it's maybe about... It's more, more by luck than judgement that they've got the best defence in the league since that game. They, they never looked particularly secure. They are very slowly building some sort of momentum, Liverpool. I think Chelsea is an important test. They don't necessarily have to win over the course of the tie but they certainly have to give them a game because otherwise psychologically it would be quite a a damaging experience I think Chelsea will have too much for them it'll depend a little bit on how strong the side is that Mourinho puts out but if Liverpool can match them especially at Anfield Liverpool to do with a trophy the Euro- I'd, I'd be more inclined to go for the Europa League than the Carling Cup the Capital One Cup I think the crucial thing is not getting swatted aside by Chelsea because I think psychologically that could be quite damaging Cass if you're Mourinho obviously you've 
rotated almost nothing this year. <laughs> yeah, Generally, always yeah. playing the same guys. You've got the big clash with uh, Manchester City coming up at the end of the month, at which point you could be, if you win that, you're eight points clear and, and laughing. In between, you've got the FA Cup game against Bradford, which, no disrespect, is, is, is Bradford. Do you think maybe this is you play your starters here and then if you are going to rest, you rest in the FA Cup? I've never felt Mourinho works that way, Gab. I've always felt that... It's a bit of an axe to grind with Liverpool, isn't it? When he got knocked yeah. out in the Champions League and the manner that it happened, I think that I think he loves to rub salt in the wounds of the big rivals, and I think he'll look at Liverpool and think that if we just put another nail in their coffin and show that we're a far better and superior team, then I think he'll do that. And like you said, Bradford is a, a game that he will probably make changes if he's going to. I, I don't see it being the League Cup. But there's not that many players that Mourinho can rotate in. There's a few. There's Schürrle, Schürrle could come in. Salah, possibly, unless he gets sold. Um, Ramirez, Ramirez, Mikel, Zuma. Yeah, but Zuma's been playing anyway, so that you know you, that, that that's not as clear cut as it was a couple of months ago. Zuma, Zuma, and Cahill. Cahill is obviously still first choice, but Zuma, they don't have a huge amount of cover. They, you've got the fullback. Loftus Cheek, Izzy, Izzy Harris, Nathan Ake. Yeah, you could bring the kids in. I'd no, be, he won't, kidding, he won't kidding, do that no, against no. Liverpool, and I'm not no. even sure that Mourinho, no, no, not, knowing Mourinho, will do that, that against Bradford. Bradford. Yeah, mm. I don't think you, you, you didn't expect to see three or four kids starting against Bradford. I, I, know, I, st- I, I think w- he loves winning football games. No, I'm sure he does. I still worry in the back of my mind that these guys are playing too many minutes, and it could have disastrous consequences later on when it matters. But you know, maybe again, maybe he's gambling on getting that eight-point lead and then you can start rotating in well, the Premier League and, and go after and the And you don't Champions have the Champions League. Yeah. But then at the same time, I think Chelsea's Chelsea squad is not massive. I'm, I've been impressed, actually, that Mourinho's not really complained about it. But they've only got kind of 18, 19 senior players. Time now for some quick hits. Chelsea demolish Swansea 5-0. And having watched the game, I can tell you it could have been 10 in the first half. Cass, anything to add other than the fact that Diego Costa ought to be administered in small doses? Just uh, before the game, I felt it was the most perfect game for Chelsea, playing Swansea in the manner they do, you know, the type of football they play. They want to play in bad areas, overplay, fits Chelsea perfectly. And it ended up being the result that I thought it would be close to. Bad to worse for Paul Lambert, who's no longer Paul Lambert. Brendan Rodgers thinks, and I quote, that nobody could do a better job than Lambert in those circumstances. Liverpool win 2-0 and Fabio Barini breaks the ice. Ollie, uh, Liverpool are actually looking pretty solid defensively. Does this three-at-the-back thing with Chan actually work? It's, it's a tactic that they've, they've used sort of every now and then under, under Rodgers. They've, they've, they've never sort of stuck to it slavishly, but it's been a, an option. I feel like it's the option that gives them most defensive security at the moment. And I, th- I think they look more comfortable with it than Manchester United do, for example. I mean, Manchester United continually playing 3-5-2, I don't think it works. Liverpool's, it seems to work, perhaps more than their 4-3-3. And a very quick bonus question, is Rogers just being polite when he says nobody in the universe could do a better job with Villa than Paul Lambert? Yes. Manchester United win at QPR, but Van Gaal plays Bizarro World with a formation, and the club's travelling support shout 4-4-2, 4-4-2 at him. Plus, uh, I saw Phil Jones taking corner kicks, which struck me as kind of weird. Rory, can you explain Louis Van Gaal's genius? The only logic, I think, to Phil Jones taking the corners is that there is no one in the world less likely to score from a corner than Phil Jones, um, so you might as well not bother having him in the box. The 4-4-2 chant, I think it was more, wasn't a specific request for a specific tactic. It was about this 3-3-2-2 is not working. Van Gaal seems to still determine to, to, to play it 
he had the, all the evidence he needed on Saturday that it doesn't work. United are much better playing with a, a flat back four and whatever other formation in midfield. Their win percentage with three five two is thirty six percent. It's about eighty percent with other formation. Well, if it's any consolation, Louis, they used to shout four four two at Sir Alex Ferguson as well. Once, when it was one one time too many, and they should all wash their mouths out with soap. Spurs went against Sunderland 2-1, but the whole world is mystified as to why Jan Vertonghen's goal was disallowed since, as any fool knows, you can't be offside in your own half unless you're Belgian, evidently. Uh, I don't want to put more pressure on referees. I want to be guilty of uh, what Rory said earlier, but Cass, please explain. How do I explain? What do you mean, please explain? It was obvious. He was, he was on the side. He was in his own half. The linesman, obviously, is <laughs> in the opposing half. It was so blatant. I can't give you an explanation apart from it was there for everybody to see. Why didn't the referee say something to him? They're communicating with each well, other. Ask him, like, what did you see? Was he in his own half? Well, obviously, the position of the referee and the linesman have to be wrong because if the, ref- the linesman can't, is not in level with the play, if he's well, not we can't with the play, <laughs> he obviously wasn't. So the, and then the, the referee is chasing the play and thinks he's got to the halfway line because neither of them have seen, haven't seen he hasn't got to the halfway line. It wasn't a half a yard. It was closer to two yards, wasn't it? That was the most amazing thing. I, I, I am absolutely mystified mm, that nobody, me. fourth official, whatever, nobody gets involved because, yeah. you know, one guy can make a mistake, but yeah. really all four. Maybe that's a situation which calls for more collaboration yeah. between officials. Roberto Martinez has admitted to complaining directly to Mike Riley, the head of the PGMOL, at some of the decisions that have gone against his club this season. Uh, and he says, watch this space in the next six games. Maybe things will level out. Um, Ollie, is this acceptable? Like, Kind of makes me uncomfortable that referees making mistakes that help Everton and penalize other teams now. And also, is it acceptable? It's okay for him to talk to the PGMOL, but should he be telling the world that he's spoken to them? One of, the, one of several things I very much like about Martinez is the fact that he's not one normally to we're being hard done by a game, the, the, the uh, referee blaming game. And I think for him to be. Um, is an element of, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. Sorry, as an aside, when you talk about putting pressure, this is the crap that puts pressure on them. You go to somebody's boss and saying, like, hey, make sure you don't make any more mistakes against Everton. Yep. Um, no, I, I agree. But I, think I, I, yeah, I, think I love the guy, whole, but I think he let himself down here. There is a whole thing about the referees that, that is getting worse and worse and worse, and we are. It, it is a vastly complicated subject. Harry Redknapp keeps telling us he's under no pressure and that reports that he is one defeat away from the sack are all rubbish. Rory, is he wise to be this bullish? Probably not, no, because if they keep losing games, he will get sacked eventually. Um, I'm not... I think he's quite fatalistic. I think bullish is the wrong word. I think fatalistic is, is maybe the right word. I think he knows that the, the, there will come a point where everything will sort of crystallise and he, he may have to go. The concern for QPR is all those difficult home games. The one silver lining is that they've got lots of difficult home games, which means they've got easier away games. I guess that's true, because you kind of... Well, play everybody, so, so yeah, yeah. There's been this thing that they've that they've played all the all the hard teams away and they've had the easy games at home, but that means the converse is now true. So it's positive and negative. Dab one for you. Davi Ginola has joined the race to succeed Sepp Blatter. I assume you are going to tell me that it is just a publicity stunt. Um, yes, that's exactly what I'm Let's going to on. tell you. When I saw how unprepared he was, when I saw that he's sponsored by a bookmaker, which is completely absurd when you consider that betting on football uh, is illegal in more than half the countries who are going to be voting on it. 
and I don't think he's going to get the five nominations, which, incidentally, Jerome Champagne today, I'm on his email mailing list, as, as all good people should be, sent an email put of pleading, help, I might not get my five nominations. Well, gee, there's a surprise. Do you not think it's a bit of a shame that, that an actual, actually quite credible challenger in Prince Ali is being kind of shunted to the side by Bajinola's ridiculous campaign? <laughs> Would it not be better I, if we all supported Prince Ali, who's actually quite, a, who's done quite a lot of good work and is, is serious? That's what UEFA wants. I'm not sure how. I mean, I'm, I'm not that sold on, on Prince Ali either. Actually, while I appreciate his colourful background, I don't like the fact that he went to Princeton. It's weird and unusual. Also, I wonder which is like Prince King. Like, can we? Does it have to be royalty here? I, I, I don't know. Credibility of David. Surely, he must have thought that doing this publicity stunt which he clearly is is going to hurt him you know forget about getting paid I just thought it was really David then I suppose what's, what's, you know, like, what, what else is he going to try and do bit of punditry well really okay, matter, okay but I wouldn't want to put myself something to totally have certainly no, no chance and then be ridiculed because of what, surely he must have known that. Secrets of Nugano are celebrity big brother, isn't it? It's, um, it, it's a uh, no-win, no-credibility situation. There. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he was the only person who, uh, who was approached or that he was their first choice either. But um, the way this has been handled has been really cack-handed, if I may say. Right, any other business? Uh, me and Cass are both wearing the same jumper. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It's it's a purple jumper. I think the 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 collar is slightly different. It casts his V-necked. Mine is a round neck. Yes. Well, um, I think we both look very fetching. You you, you certainly do. And Ollie, are you wearing a purple jumper? Uh, no. Are you I'm dressed? Uh, not yet. Just slippers. <laughs> all right. I'll leave that to everybody's imagination. That's all we've got time for this week. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes and Player FM for Android, please do so. Many thanks to my guest today, the very excellent Ollie Kay. Uh, also, Tony Cascarino and Rory K. Smith. Check out the times.co.uk. If you're not a member yet, you can take our one-pound digital trial today. Just search Timesport online. Bye-bye. Your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.